The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8.15 and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. As Johnny mentioned, Jason is preaching at an RUF uh, regional conference in Mississippi. Uh, hundreds of college students from all over the South who were there, and it's been a good weekend uh, for him. And uh, last week, he finished up a series uh, from a letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And then next week, he will start a series uh, on the life of Joseph. And so we're in one of those awkward in-between Sundays, between series. And so I chose one of my favorite psalms uh, for us to look at this morning. One of my final projects uh, in seminary was an in-depth study of uh, Psalm 16. And at one point in life, I knew more about Psalm 16 than any other part of the Scripture. And I can assure you that nearly all of that information is gone from my brain. And I relearned it uh, this week. But uh, I'm really glad that I'm not preaching for Hebrew 4 this morning in order to graduate from seminary. Um, But I was reminded this week of just what a beautiful psalm uh, this is, Psalm of David this is. So uh, we're going to read Psalm 16, hear God's word to us this morning. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we agree with David that we have no good apart from you, that our wisdom and our insight and our knowledge will not get us what we need in this time. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and teach us and point us to Jesus, and that in your presence today that we would experience a fullness of joy. And we pray that you would speak to us and that we would leave here convinced of our need, but even more that we would leave even more convinced of the sufficiency in the grace of our Savior. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. I want to start out this morning by telling you about my fifth grade spring break trip. We are in the dead of winter, and spring break is somewhere on the horizon for those of you who have school-aged children. But this particular spring break, I was at the beach with my family and another family, and the kids decided that we were going to get in a little John boat And we're going to take a little tour of the bay that was right next to our house. The bay was a few miles long. We were going to go out for the afternoon and be back for dinner. And it was a safe place to be. It was a shallow shallow bay, not many boats, no waves. 
Uh, I was the youngest in the group. Everyone else was in middle school or high school, and so we set off on this three-hour tour, and it was a taste of freedom. No adults, just us kids, and we were setting out on our own adventure, and as we were making our way across the bay, predictably a huge storm uh, came upon us, and this was probably just an ordinary afternoon uh, spring storm, but in my memory as a fifth grader, this was the largest, most ferocious thunderstorm that has ever taken place in the entire world. The rain was coming in sideways. It was thunder and lightning all around us. And we were smart enough to realize that a metal boat in the water was not the best place for us to be. And so uh, we were on the far side of the lagoon. And so we pulled up on the shore in a place where there were no other boats, there were no other houses. To us, it felt like a deserted island that we had stumbled upon. And remember, this was in the prehistoric era. There were no cell phones back then, and so we could not call our parents to let them know where we were. A storm lasted about an hour, and we had huddled up under the tree to take refuge from the storm that was around us. We felt like we were in the middle of some great adventure novel that we were having to fend for ourselves as kids stranded on the island. Eventually, the storm subsided, and we made it back home much to the relief of our parents. But in the midst of that storm, we needed a place of refuge. We faced something that was bigger than we were, something that was beyond what we could control. We needed something to shield us and to protect us from what was we were up against. The abandoned shore was a refuge for us that day. It stood between us and the danger we faced. In this psalm, David needs a refuge. The text doesn't tell us exactly what kind of trouble David was in, but from the first line of the psalm, we know that he's in trouble. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And at the end of the psalm, we see that what he was in was so severe that David thought he might die. And so this is no just small thing that he's in. He is at the point of death. He needed safety and protection, and we too live in a sinful and broken world in which there's a lot of danger and hurt and pain all around us. And what is it that you need protection from? What is it that you are seeking safety from? Some of you carry guns with you at all times as a means of protection against the world around you. We have off-duty police officers who are here every Sunday. We're very thankful for them. But we need some measure of protection as we gather together for worship. You've got locks on your doors and on your car. You've got more passwords than you could possibly ever remember to keep someone from stealing your identity. We work out, we diet, we get injections, injections and surgeries and pills and creams to protect us from the reality that we are aging and that we will all die one day. We save to and invest to protect us from financial threats around us. We spend so much of our time and energy to protect ourselves against what we think are threats in our lives, things we can't control. And so many of us have access and we have resources to get the things that we think we need in order to protect us and to make us feel safe. But as many resources as you may have, let me assure you that King David had more than you do. He had power and wealth and fame to insulate him from what he was up against. So I want us to look at the psalm and ask the question, where is it, what is it 
that David finds security and protection. Where does, in the midst of his trial, in the midst of what he was up against, where does David find security in life? And what does that tell us about where you and I can find our security? The psalm gives us one answer to the question and four examples. And I want to walk through those of where David finds his security and protection. We find the answer to the question in the, first, in the second verse. David says, You are my Lord, and I have no good beyond you. No good apart from you. The literal translation is, I have no good beyond you. The goodness that David has in his life begins and ends with God. In his desire for safety and security, David says, God, you are the only solution to what I am facing. Remember that this is David speaking. This is the king. This is the one who has more power, more influence, more money than anyone around him. Surely if anyone could say, God, you've provided something in life, but I can take it from here. If anyone could say that, David surely is the one who could say that. But he says, God, I have nothing beyond you. I have no good apart from you. In the midst of what he's facing, David says, all of my trust has to be in you. And so that's our one answer. David finds his safety and security in God alone. And the rest of the psalm is really just an explanation of David working that out. What are the examples of God's goodness in his life? And I want us to look at four examples. The first example is in verse 3. One of the examples of goodness in David's life is the people of God. Verse 3 is, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. In David's time of trouble, he looks to the saints in the land, to the people of God. They are a reminder to him of God's goodness. David remembers that he is not alone, that God has placed him in a community of people that he delights to be with. And again, remember who's saying this. This is the king. David is saying, I need other people if I'm going to make it through what I'm going through right now. If David needed friends, if David needed a community of people, surely you and I do as well. One of the interesting areas of research that has come out in the last few years are studies on loneliness and studies on the effects that a lack of social relationship has on your physical health. A book was recently published with the conclusions from the Harvard study on adult, on adult development. And this, is, this study is really amazing. The study has been going on for 85 years. It traced the lives of generations of people over 85 years, thousands of people over nine decades. It is the longest and largest study of its kind ever conducted. And the conclusion of the study is this. The key to happiness and a meaningful life is not a lot of money. The key to a meaningful life is not long vacations, it's not a successful career, and it is not a life of leisure. The number one predictor of of health and happiness in life is meaningful relationships. The leader of the Harvard study says this, what you need in life is someone you can call on. In fact, we ask our study participants, who would you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? Some of our folks couldn't list several, some of our folks could list several people, and some of our folks couldn't list anyone, not a soul in the world. We think that everyone needs at least one person in their life who they feel is a safety net for them. 
who would have their back if they were really in trouble. There are other studies uh, that look at loneliness and its impact on your physical health, and the conclusions are just as staggering. Loneliness, a lack of social relationships, significantly increases your chance of premature death of every kind. Studies show that loneliness can be worse for your health than smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. Your risk for dementia and stroke and heart disease are increased by as much as 50%. Loneliness is associated with higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. So after decades of study, after millions of dollars have been spent, the science is in. You and I need relationships in life. And there's a part of me that wants to respond to all of these studies and say, well, you know, you could have saved a lot of time and money if you had just read the Psalms. Have you read the Scriptures? Have you read Genesis 1 and 2? It's almost as if God created us for relationships. And when you go against God's design of His creation, the results are disastrous. Science is catching up with the Scriptures, and the truth of God's design is that you and I need friends. God created us for relationships. And so how can you know that God loves you and that God will provide for you in the midst of the trouble you're going through? Look around you. You have the people of God. You were a part of the community of God. One of the things that we long for as a church is that when you are in trouble, that when you find yourself in suffering or pain, when you need a place of refuge, that you move toward the church and not away from the church. That your first response is not, well, I need to stay away. I need to kind of get my act together. And then when things are better, then I can re-engage in the life of the church. But rather, we would long for you to say, where else would I go? Where else would I go when I find myself in trouble and in pain? Who else would I rather be around when I'm struggling than my church? That doesn't mean the church is perfect. We're far from it. We've hurt people. We've hurt hurting people. We've made mistakes. And even despite the ways that the church has failed, even though relationships within the church can be really hard, it is still one of the primary means by which God takes care of you in this world. And that's what we want to be as a church. So if you're here, you don't have a church family, I would encourage you to find one, whether it's here or one of the other many great churches in our area. Find a place where you can be in meaningful relationships with other people. It's how God created you to live. It's how life is best lived. So the first example of God's goodness, God's care in David's life is the people of God that he's given to him. The second example is the providence of God. We see that in verses 4 to 6. Providence is one of those big theological words that we need to define to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. Our confession of faith describes providence as this. God, the creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Providence means that God is in control of all things, and that he is working all things 
for His glory and for your good. We're going to be hearing a lot more about providence in the weeks to come because one of the major themes that we see in the life of Joseph is the providence of God. And in our kingdom communities, the entire church will be looking more in depth at what the Bible teaches about the providence of God uh, this spring. But how is the providence of God a means of comfort for David in what he is going through? In verses 5 and 6, David uses five different words to describe the providence of God, how God has provided what David needs in life. The Lord is his chosen portion and his cup, and he is his lot in life. These words speak of how God is the one who's provided what he has, that God is the one who ensures his future. And then David says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That's speaking of how they would measure property back then. The property lines have fallen for David in pleasant places. What he's saying in God's providence, I've, my life is a good piece of land. It's as if I've been given the best piece of land. I didn't earn it. I didn't choose it. But God in his grace has provided abundantly for what I need. But notice that in these figures of speech that God is the one who's doing the work, that God is the active agent who is accomplishing these things in David's life, that God is the one who took David as the runt of the litter. God is the one who took him as the least and the last and made him king over his people. God is the one who made a covenant with David and said, someone's going to be on your throne forever. David reflects on God's providence and says, I was a nobody. And God has taken me and he has provided for me over and over. And it's as if David is stepping back and being a little objective. And he's looking at his life and he's saying, what are my options here? You go up to verse 4, he says, why would I want to chase after other gods? Why would I want to go after these other gods? God has provided for me over and over and over in life. Do I want to trust a sovereign, providential God who has been faithful to me? Or do I want to go chase after other idols? When he thinks of the providence of God, the choice for David is easy. Where else would I turn in the midst of my troubles? But the third example we see in verse 7, it is the guidance of God. It's not just that God's providence has led David up to this point, but that God is active. God is engaged in what is going on presently in David's life. David says in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. At night, my heart also instructs me. What David is saying is God's not asleep at the wheel. That God is not sitting in the heavens, looking down and just waiting for David to figure it out. Good luck, David. Hope, Hope this works out for you. But that God is active in what he's doing right now. That God is giving him counsel even as he sleeps at night. Think about this, that when David is at his most passive... When David is doing the least, when David is dead asleep, God is at work. And do you believe that this is true in your life? That God is at work in your life even when you can't see it, even when you have no clue what God is doing, that He is at work. In the midst of this trial, it would have been easy for David to say, well, this is how I'm going to get out of this. This is my plan for how I'm going to solve this problem. But this entire psalm is a reflection on David's trust that God will do, that God will provide for what he needs in this situation. And that comes through with, with great clarity in the last example that we have in verses 8 to 11, that God will provide ultimate protection for David in the psalm. 
David finds his refuge in God because he knows that he has safety from the last and the greatest enemy, and that is the enemy of death. David has confidence that the Lord is not going to abandon him at the grave. He's not going to abandon him in his greatest time of need. If God has brought him through so many things, if God has set him apart, if God has anointed him, if God has declared him to be king, why would he leave him? Why would he leave his anointed one at this moment? In fact, we see in the last verse of the psalm, he's not going to be abandoned at the grave. He's actually going to be at the right hand. He's going the opposite direction of the grave. That he is going to be at the right hand of the Father, a place of eternal blessing and pleasures with God. And so this psalm is a beautiful picture of David finding his refuge and his safety in God alone. But I want us to stop and think, how does this psalm point us? How point us to Jesus? How does this psalm reveal who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? If you've been around this church for a while, you know that our ultimate aim is not to give you tips on how King David made it through a tough time in his life. You and I aren't David. We, we don't just need an example. We need someone who will come and will save us. And if you've ever taught on the Psalms, you know that it can be difficult to get from the Psalms to Jesus. It's not always an easy path, but in Psalm 16, we have a bit of a cheat code because we only need to go to the book of Acts in order to, fig- in order to see how this Psalm reveals Jesus to us. On the first day of the Christian church, The day of Pentecost, the first gathered worship service of the Christian church, what text does the Apostle Peter choose to make sense of what is going on around him? His text for the day was Psalm 16. We have a divinely inspired road to Jesus given to us in Acts 2. And so if you have a Bible on a device or around you, uh, if you have the Pew Bible, it's on page 910. We're going to read a few verses from Acts 2, beginning in Uh, verse 25. This is Peter reading Psalm 16 and explaining Psalm 16 to us. So uh, Acts 2, beginning in verse 25. For David says concerning him, concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants upon the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter's interpretation of this passage is worthy of a sermon on its own, but I want to point out a few things. Peter says, without blinking, without hesitation, that David was writing about a true and better David. He was writing about Jesus, that Psalm 16 is about Jesus. I find Peter's wording a bit humorous. He says, I'm confident that David wasn't speaking about himself because David is dead. 
you can go to his tomb right now. So he must not have been speaking about himself. God delivered David from the immediate situation of Psalm 16, but he did not deliver him ultimately from death itself. And so Peter says in verse 30 and 31, David was a prophet, and he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. And so according to Peter, this psalm finds its fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus. And so how is this good news for you and me? It's good news because you and I can be tempted to look at the psalm and say, well, that's great. That's great, but I'm not David. Uh, I'm not the king. I don't have the trust and the faith that David had in this psalm, and my life is a wreck. And I'm not actually sure that I want to trust or that I can trust that God is going to provide what I need right now. This psalm not only shows us that not only did Jesus die for your sins, but that he lived a perfectly obedient life for you. That Jesus was the one who could truly say to the Father, I have no good apart from you. That he was the one who completely and fully trusted in his Father's will when all of life was going against him. David, David had the people of God in the midst of his trial, but not Jesus. Jesus went to the cross utterly alone, forsaken, abandoned by everyone who was with him. David had the kind providence of God in the midst of his trial, but not Jesus. No, Jesus endured the most, the ultimate frowning providence of God. He suffered the just for the unjust, the innocent one punished for the guilty. And so if you are united to Jesus by faith and you know that what is true of Jesus is now true of you. That His faithfulness, that His obedience in the midst of this trial are credited to you as if you had done them yourself. And so to the believer who is doubting, to the believer who is weary, look at this passage and see Jesus' obedience in your place. Rest in His faithfulness for you. But this text is also a promise to us. If God did not abandon Jesus at the grave, but He raised Him to new life, then you can trust that He will not abandon you whatever you are going through right now. If you are united to Jesus, death will not and cannot have the last word because Jesus is the one who has taken your punishment. If Psalm 16 is really true, if Jesus was not abandoned at the grave, but if He was raised to new life, then whatever you are facing right now will turn for good. Whatever you are up against will turn for your good. If this psalm is true, then everything is going to be okay in your life. You might not know exactly how, exactly when that will turn for good, or how God will do it, but God will make it right. We have the promise of God, the resurrection of Jesus ensures that for us. We know that if this passage is true, then it means that you and I, that we can find ultimate security and safety in Jesus. And it also means that we can't find lasting security in anything or in anyone else. And so what are you facing today? What is it that you need security from? Look to Jesus. Find your refuge and eternal safety in Him. Let's pray.
Lord, we pray that by your Spirit that you would remind us of what we have been given in Jesus, of the glorious riches that we have in him, of the acceptance and love and security that can only be found through being united to him. And so, Lord, take these words. We pray that by your Spirit that you would use them to convince us again of our need and the great sufficiency of our Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.